0: Radioinfluence.com
1: Welcome in to the MA Report Podcast. I am Jason Floyd, and to my right is Daniel Galvon. If you are watching this over on YouTube or if you listen to audio platforms, well, he is on my right. I'm on the left as we are here to break down everything going on in the world of mixed martial arts. Uh, happy pre-Christmas to everyone out there. Hopefully everyone has a uh, maybe get a couple of days off work. I uh, will be uh, out in Phoenix, Arizona uh for Bucks and Cardinals. I'll be out there this weekend. So I will be uh, I'll be celebrating Christmas tomorrow night with my family. And then uh you know, then my Buccaneer family. I'll be celebrating with it this weekend. Uh any big plans for you, uh, Daniel?
2: Man, it's just family time. Time to hang out with the family, but I think the thing I'm probably looking forward to the most is heading out to the movie theaters and checking out the new avatar movie. Uh, they need probably like the entire planet to watch it in order for it to make a profit based on how much they spent on making it. But when it comes to just things I'm looking forward to do, I think on December 20, 25th, you'll find my butt in a, in a movie seat with a a big bunch of popcorn and some hot chips and a Coke. And I'll be watching avatar. So I'm looking forward to that. And you know, as a sports fan, it's just a great time of year. Obviously, mixed martial arts is on the back burner for a little bit. But, you know, Christmas Day, I'm going to have NBA all day. NFL is going to get in the, on the action this time. It, it's always a great time. And the best part is, well, I get off work.
1: Not going to lie. I am enjoying going to be able to wake up Saturday morning in, in Phoenix and football is going to be on at 11 a.m. Looking forward to that
2: yeah yeah. I, I think we, we've kind of established that the west coast is probably the best coast and yeah uh, yeah unfortunately you can't capitalize on a UFC card because that also is amazing mm-hmm. you know especially at pay-per-view on the west coast even for me on the central time zone I'm one hour ahead of you I'm still jealous of those fellows out there in Cali and Washington and Arizona they they get a you know get done with the UFC card and it's not
0: midnight yeah
1: <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's uh. I mean, God, I wish I, I wish I had that because that is super nice. But you know, Daniel, yesterday, Bellator and Ryzen held a virtual press conference with Scott Coker and Sakia Barrow to, you know, promote this December thirty first car, Which you know, one of the questions I did get on my social media was, hey, did the media ask about? whether you know this fight car air live it's very clear it's on tape delay and no question was that answered. no no question was asked about this and really i think it's just one of those situations where we all know the answer to the question so it was kind of like well why, why uh bring that question up here but there were some interesting little tidbits that scott coker did throw out there but to me the biggest tidbit that Scott Coker threw out there was, so he's asked about co-promotion by John Morgan uh, of the UG. And you, if you're watching some video, you'll see Scott Coker on audio site. You'll hear Scott Coker, but uh, Scott Coker clearly, clearly taking a jab at the PFL.
0: Working with other promoters, there has to be a certain amount of trust. And what are they bringing to the table? Uh, and I think that's really the question is, you know, uh, what, what is the relationship going to look like moving forward? And, uh, you know, what, what fighters are they going to want to fight? Or, you know, what, uh, what, what does the business look like maybe moving forward uh, after the event's over? So there's a lot, of, a lot of questions because really, John, as you know, you're putting your fighters in harm's way. You're putting your brand in harm's way. And that's okay because that should be the martial arts way, right? And uh, uh, where the best fight the best. And in, when Sagiwara owned Pride, that's what happened. Before, uh, you know, the UFC came and bought Pride, the best fighters were fighting in Pride. And, um, uh, you know, the best fighters were fighting in K-1 at that time. So, uh, you know, I don't mean to go off on a tangent, but at, at the end of the day, it comes down to the best fighters should fight the best fighters. But there's a, a business component to it, and, uh, you know, does it make sense in the long run? And is there a certain amount of trust between you and the other promoter to make sense uh, that it makes business sense.
1: Daniel clear shot at PFL. I mean, am, am I wrong in taking it that way?
2: No, I don't think so. Because when you're focusing on trust as a key part of the answer that has to indirectly be what he's talking about, because between Bellator and PFL, there just isn't any trust. And that trust has kind of been taken away because of, comments made out in the public and it, it just seems like it as we head towards this Ryzen Bellator show it, it's clear that we won't get a PFL Bellator deal. And <laughs> in America that would be a, a, a nice deal. That would be a really nice show but you know Ryzen and Bellator I mean they offer a really good thing to one another where these are two promotions that have a strong hold in their respective countries. And it's very nostalgic if you were a mixed martial arts fan that grew up during the Pride days, especially around this time of year. So, uh, look, I'm looking forward to the card. But, yeah, you see a comment like that, and it's just hard to imagine Scott Coker getting that trust to work with the PFL. And that's a bit of a shame because of that, the MA fans do lose in not maybe getting the, the Cyborg Harrison fight. You know, that fight will probably only happen if Scott Coker is involved. And it appears as though Scott doesn't have that trust with the PFL. And to be frank, I can't blame him.
1: Look, it's to me, the number one loser in a potential Bellator PFL card. A is combat sports fans, because we're not getting the fight. We want to see the second biggest loser to me is Kayla Harrison, because to me, that's almost like Scott Coker saying, Kayla. When you're a free agent, come talk because it's clear to me that Bellator is not going to do business with your PFL. But who knows? May, maybe something changes. Maybe, maybe these comments maybe help draw some you know bridge together between between the two. You know, one of the things that I, I did find kind of interesting is you know they kind of talked about kind of how this thing came together with with Bellator Rising obviously you know Scott and Saki Ibarra have a great re- uh, working relationship going back to Scott's days in, in K1 and you know they mentioned about the fact of you know when I first started talking and you know Saki was like hey man throw me some names out there and uh, he was extremely impressed that Scott Coker was like no nah, man I'm bringing the best of Bellator what what do you got here and it was uh, you know Scott did mention like look this is a Rising show it's under Rising rules it's in the Rising you know, in terms, they're using the Ryzen gloves, they'll be in the Ryzen ring, all of that. He did note that the fact of, you know, that this this could potentially uh, be a two-fight deal, and here's what Scott Coker had to say about that.
0: Well, I, Saki Bar and I talked about a two-fight event because the next one has to be in a cage, and it has to be under the Bellator rules. And, uh, you know, things can be different when uh, the rules are different and the apparatus is different and just coming into a different environment. Whether we do that here In the U.S. or in Japan, it hasn't been figured out. I think Hawaii would be something that would be a lot of fun. Maybe in the future we could do something together uh, there. But, um, you know, I want to just get through this first one uh, on the 31st, and then we can start talking about uh, the future together.
1: Scott did mention that, you know, they are going to bring two officials over with them to help regulate this event. I'm not sure who those two officials are. Maybe one's a judge, maybe one's a referee. I don't know. Scott didn't really go into that. Uh, he did mention that the reason that, you know, if you remember when this card was announced, a lot of people were like, oh, wow, AJ McKee's in the main event, not uh, not Patricio Pitbull, and that was due to the fact that AJ McKee is taking on the Ryzen light, lightweight champion in the main event of this fight card. And, uh, you know, it was being on that call on that zoom call, it did seem like the media does seem excited about this event. Uh, We'll see what it's like on new year's Eve, but uh, there does seem to be some excitement for this event, at least for the media.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's the only show in town during that weekend. And that to me is probably a very, very smart choice by the promotions. And and again, for it to be on new year's Eve, is just a great date. Obviously you, you would want this to be live. Look, It's not like I was going to watch this card live, so I'm not going to die on this hill. But in general, I just believe sports should be live. I will say I'm very excited to see Patricio Pitbull in particular fight under Ryzen rules. And for those that aren't familiar with Ryzen and what the difference is, essentially all strikes to the head are legal whether or not an opponent is grounded. And that's the key difference, right? Like soccer, kicks... Uh, hell, even a, a 12 to 6 elbow is legal under the rising rules. Mm-hmm. And that's the main difference. I think the one question I would have, actually, when it comes to these fights happening under Ryzen rules is, does that extend to judging criteria? Is it going to be yes. under the Ryzen judging criteria? So yeah. that's also interesting. And I, I, I just wonder, you know, if they're bringing over a judge that's used to using the updated judging criteria in america how are they going to approach it uh because you know when when i look at the Ryzen criteria it is pretty damn similar to to the criteria we have here
1: scott coker did talk about that they said they actually did a rules meeting with all the the fighters that are coming over from bellator to explain how the fights are scored whatnot i mean this is at the end of the day and and scott said it this is a Ryzen show yeah, you know, we're it's just Bellator's coming over with their fighters, but it's under a rising rules. Everything you've watched in a rising event, that's what we're going to see on, on the thirty first show. To me, as a a sports fan, we're bo- we're both sports fans, and the reason I wish this was live is the fact of so it's going to air at eight o'clock Eastern Time, Pacific Time, on New Year's Eve night on Showtime. So, do I watch a tape delay Bellator show? Or do I watch Georgia and Ohio State in the college football semifinals? You 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 know the you know the answer. Uh, uh, yeah. Bellator, look, love me Bellator. Uh, my eyes are on Georgia and Ohio State. Yeah,
2: in mine too. We host a weekly mixed martial arts podcast, but first and foremost, me and you are sports fans, yeah. and when it's on tape delay, there's no harm, especially since you know we record midweek, and obviously, you do do a second podcast as well but for us for my purposes i'm going to be able to watch this fight card whenever the hell i want on sunday oh. morning and it's there's no difference i mean surely whether i watch it sunday morning or saturday evening if something crazy happened i will know about it that's just the that's just the modern time we live in and, and that's why you shouldn't do things on tape delay only
1: I mean, look, I will DVR it and watch it when, uh, you know, I have an opportunity because that'll be kind of be a busy week because I've got the Bucks game on the first and then um, I'm working the radio broadcast for – the ReliQuest bowl on the second and then the third, the third, I'm leaving town. So, uh, you know, look, it's, you know, it's just one of those things that we're talking about 2022, 2023, you, you should be, uh, tape delay in sports events, but, um, you know, but outside of that, I mean, Coker was asked a little bit about the lightweight tournament, you know, did say that, you know, they haven't you know come down with the firm date of when that would start off. And like, I was just writing down the list and, Bellator's got a lot of options, even if they don't add in any lightweights that are not currently under their roster. You know, you, you look at you know Usman, obviously a champion, Patrici, the former champion, Musayev, who I thought should have gotten uh, the title matchup after his his, his win in, in his debut, Benson Henderson, Shabby, Outlaw, Premis, Mamadov, McKee, Godzi, who's a part of the of this co promotion event. Like Bellator's got a lot of options. I do hope that. Usman's first fight is against Musaev because right? to me that is the fight to make for Usman and Magos first title events.
2: Well, uh, let me just say something real quick. I could be wrong, but I actually think the consumer can watch this live on Fight TV.
1: Or in the United, is that in the United States, or is that God, only internationally?
2: I honestly don't know. I I think it. I think I don't know because obviously, It's well, okay. very I, confusing because there's the Ryzen 40 card but maybe the okay. rising All right. card isn't available.
1: Correct. Those are two different cards. They're yeah. on the same oh. date, but they're different cards.
2: Damn, that's wild, bro. Because
1: I, I want to say John Dotson's on that card.
2: Yes. Yeah, that's what, yeah. That card is really crazy. It's it's going to be, and then Yushi's on that card, who I have no idea who Yushi is, but that's just a great name. But yeah, I mean, yeah, Dotson on this card. It's a against Hideo Tokoro, which should be like a really easy win for John Dodson because, you know, unfortunately for Tokoro, his best days were 15 years ago uh, or 10 at least. But, uh, yeah, so I guess Ryzen 40 you can watch live and then the Bellator versus Ryzen, which has all the fights that we're kind of looking forward to, is still on tape to delay. So, yeah, yeah. I, I am mistaken. I just wanted to double check here because I did see it on Fight TV.
1: And the one thing that uh, Saki, Ab- Saki did say during this virtual media day, and I thought it was really spot on, is like, this is just a win-win opportunity for Ryzen because you know you know in terms of that casual North American anime audience are, are they really taking in a lot of Ryzen content? Most likely not. But if Ryzen can go out there and let's say they go three and two in these five matchups, it's a it's a huge win for Ryzen and and potentially do we see that second show uh, with Ryzen? But it was kind of interesting, kind of hear all of that. Now, last week on the podcast, we threw out this teasing topic of who is who who is the fighter. That has had the best year in the history of mixed martial arts. Now, before we get that, I did see MMA, I want to say it was MMA junkie this week. Uh they, they put out their Fire of the Year and they picks Alex Pahaya over Alexander Volkanovsky. And so, I mean, and those do appear to be the top two candidates when we're talking about MMA Fighter of the Year. And so I'm looking at Volkanovsky. And then I'm looking at, at Alex's strength of schedule, and I'm like, you know what? I agree with MMA junkie. I think Alex, is, Alex Bahia is the right choice as fighter of the year.
2: Uh, it's tough. I mean, uh, I, I think it's a great narrative for Perea. I, I think it's it, it's either him or Volk. I, I think the reason why I probably was just leaning towards Volkanovsky is I think when it's all said and done, Especially as I approach this topic, I kind of look at all the awards and I just see each year, it lets you know kind of who was the best fighter that year. And Volkanovski is clearly, to me, the top pound-for-pound fighter. Mm -hmm. Since he had two championship fights and he is the clear pound-for-pound fighter versus Alex, who just vaulted up to the middleweight ranking, it's tough. I ended up going with Volkanovski still, Mm -hmm. largely due to the fact that when it comes to history, 2022, I believe Alexander Volkanovsky was the best fighter. And he had a similar fight output to Alex. But it, it, it's close. As long as you have Alex in there, you can't go wrong. It just depends on what their last name is.
1: Now, you brought this topic up to me about who is a fighter that's had the best year in MMA history. And when you said this to me, I was like, at first, I was like, damn, man, that's a good question. And then I got to go back to 2011, Daniel. My pick is John Jones in 2011. So February of 2011, he submits Ryan Bader at UFC 126. Just over a month later, he defeats Shogun via TKO at UFC 128 to win the UFC lightweight title. Of course, you remember that was supposed to be Rashad Evans. They were teammates at that point. He gets that. Then he comes back in September, submits Rampage Jackson at UFC 135 in the fourth round. And then he finishes off his 2011 campaign with a technical submission win over the old Machida, which I think we all remember that submission where he literally just guillotine chokes him standing and just just drops Machida. <laughs> like, like hey, hey, referee sounds like, all right, let's just drop.
2: Dude, I mean, that's a great answer. It's a great answer, and it's something that I was looking at here. I mean, first and foremost, four major fights, three championship fights. He asserted himself as the best fighter on the planet, and in three championship fights, maybe the best fighter of all time. That's a really damn good year, and I think that's a strong case for the answer. I've got got an answer that I think will surprise you. I don't think you have Mm -hmm. that one on your list. I just want to run through some people who are honorable mentions. Ironically enough, to me, Conor McGregor had a really strong uh, 2015. He had three fights. He beats Dennis Siever, which is fine, but the two big ones is the win over Chad Mendez and Jose Aldo, and he just completely turns the MA sport on its head. I think over the past 10 years, that's one of the most notable years we've had on record. Uh, another one I want to mention, uh, Fedor Emelianenko. Uh, I, say, I want to look at the year 2003. He went... 5 and 0 including a win over Rodrigo Nogueira uh and he, and and the rest of the wins you know Gary Goodridge is a pretty good win but the rest weren't the most exciting but still 5 and 0 in 2003 another year in 2003 that's worth mentioning is Randy Couture the reason being is he basically when you think of 2003 UFC I think there are three names that stand out Randy Couture Chuck Liddell and Tito Ortiz those are the faces of the UFC at that time in my mind mm-hmm. in that year Randy Couture Beat both Liddell and Ortiz, kind of established himself as the king of the jungle in the UFC, and that's a really notable year. Uh, let's see, I got two one more honorable mention: Shogun Hua, uh, two thousand five. It was the same year that him and Takanori Gomi basically uh, won grand Prix. for Shogun Hua. This is when he was the best fighter on the planet. Uh, he he wins the middleweight grand prix, including Finnish victories over Ricardo Arona. Alistair Overeem, Little Nog, and Rampage Jackson. He also had another win that year. That's a really strong year. So, which fighter I think had the best year of all time in the history of mixed martial arts or no holds barred? Well, Jason, my answer to you is Hoist Gracie in 1994. Okay. Hoist Gracie in 1994. uh, Let's see. He went one, two, three, four. Oh, God. My math is bad. I believe he won 8-0, okay? So, this is like the second year in the history of the sport. He comes out of nowhere in UFC 1. He wins the tournament, and he follows it up by going 8-0, winning the UFC 2 tournament, winning the UFC 4 tournament. He competed in the UFC 3 tournament, but he withdrew after his fight with Chemo. So, Hoyce Gracie, I think, was unequivocally the greatest fighter of all time in the year 1994, and in that year... He finished everybody. In that year, he went eight and zero, beating Dan Severn, Keith Hackney, Patrick Smith, Chemo, and so many others. So, Jason, I will posit it to you. That the greatest year in the history of this sport was, in fact, in nineteen ninety four, when Hoyce Gracie continued to defend the Gracie name and went eight and zero, winning two UFC tournaments.
1: I get why you go there. I'll, I'll give you an honorable mention. I'll go yeah. two thousand seven. This fighter went three, and zero. Oh. two of them were title fights. Quentin rampage. Jackson makes his UFC debut, gets a knockout win against Marvin Eastman comes back three months later, knocks out Chuck Liddell. And so this was, I mean, this was a height of Chuck Liddell. Like, I mean, Chuck Liddell was a God in a lot of people's mind. And then he comes back five months later, four months later, and defeats Dan Henderson when Dan Henderson was coming into UFC as a pride champion. That's an honorable mention. How about some other honorable mentions? Not necessarily me, meaning any particular fighter in play. The early on Bellator tournament winners who had to win three fights in 90 days. That's uh Like, that's for instance, a- I pulled up Patricio Pitbull back in 2011, defeated Georgia Carhyan, Wilson Hayes, and Daniel Strauss. All within a three month, less than ninety days.
2: That yeah, that was crazy. That was a I, I,
1: I remember. So when I was I was traveling out to Bellator events, and you they'd have these tournament fights going on, and you saw like the wear and tear of these fighters who are just trying to make weight three times in ninety days. Like I mean, people would joke about Bjorn saying it's the toughest tournament in sports, but I think it's also what make like you look at the PFL right now and the grind that those fighters have to go through to win you know three fights in basically a six-month time frame.
2: Yeah, it, it's incredibly grueling. I mean, the wear and tear of the injuries, and a lot of it really happens during the training camp. Uh, so so those those are really impressive. And I think one last honorable mention I'll have is Amanda Nunez in 2016. Starts the year off with a win over Valentina Shevchenko, Misha Tate, and ends it by beating Ronda Rousey i think when it comes to women's mixed martial arts that may be the most impressive year we've had thus far
1: oh no no doubt about it but uh yeah i mean the, the john jones one stuck out to me but i, I do yeah. like what you i do like what you say in hoist Gracie. That, that's going that's going old old school og and may there i don't mind it man i mean in
2: 1994 i think everyone on the planet that watched a ufc video vhs tape thought hoist gracie was literally a legend and uh I, you know, I just think when you look at the context at the time, mm-hmm. it's pretty hard to beat that. But honestly, John Jones in 2011—that's the modern pick, in my opinion. You yeah, know, that, that. was uh, that was an incredible freaking year for dude. Yeah,
1: and, and great uh, Conor McGregor. That that's a that's another good one there. And you just talked about things. You know, like when you started talking about that when I what immediately came to my mind about that was is if you remember. The Dennis Seaver fight was an FS one fight. And there was a ton of promotion during the NFL playoffs leading up to that for that one. As I recall, I want to say that was a Sunday event that they put on in Boston. And and then of course the Chad, you know, the, the whole Chad Mendez fight where of course it was supposed to be Jose. Then of course uh we were, it was uh, about ten days ago. It was actually the anniversary of that Jose Aldo knockout.
2: Wow. Yeah, that's one of the craziest moments. I never expected that to happen and it was over so freaking quick. I know. That's one of the craziest moments I've ever seen as a sports fan.
1: Yeah, yeah. That uh, yeah, that's that's Not yeah.
2: not as crazy as the World Cup I saw. Did you watch any of that? I know I mentioned it to you and you just we, said we, you hate soccer.
1: We ha- we had it on in the booth. We were yeah, that was uh that that was crazy just the fact of, you know, the, the you know, Argentina scores the goal to go up in extra time and then France comes back in. Did you see that photo in Argentina of like 4 million people? in the capital city all celebrating that victory uh, parade their day.
2: Yeah, I know I saw it. It was crazy. I was squinting to see if I could find Santiago Ponzinibbio in there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I can only imagine what it's like for that country. I mean, yeah. they, uh, so many other countries look at soccer as the end all be all. And Argentina yeah. is certainly one of those countries. And, you know, needless to say, Lionel Messi probably won't ever have to pay for a drink in Argentina. But he probably won't be able to order a drink because the whole damn world, like just wherever he goes, I saw a headline. I didn't read it that they had to get escorted by a helicopter from their bus. But I didn't oh, wow. really click on it. Wow. I didn't click on the article. So well, I don't it, know what the
1: one is. If you also remember, you remember the story that came out, Rise of World Cup, because uh, Qatar wouldn't allow the sale of beer at the stadium. So Budweiser came out. I guess they had like $75 million of product that they were sitting there. So that's now going to Argentina. Oh my
2: god! So was it just going to be free of charge? Like were they just going yeah? To they're just going,
1: Yeah, they're going to donate to, to Argentina. How,
2: yeah. how are they going to disperse the beer? Oh, <laughs> it's yeah. going to be like show up to city hall and pick up your six pack.
1: Who That's knows, awesome.
2: That is yeah. freaking awesome. I love it. I love it so much.
1: Another uh, news topic that's come out over the last uh, 24 hours or so came from Twitter and Nate Quarry, uh, who uh, tweeted, breaking, just got word from Senator uh, Mark Wayne Mullen that he's looking to introduce the Ali Expansion Act from the Senate side of things in 2023. Uh, Prior, Mark Wayne Mullen, who, of course, uh, had, uh, I want to say, three professional mixed martial arts fights, when he was in the House of Representatives, he was trying to introduce this bill. And ultimately, you know, really nothing uh, came of it for the most part. But now he's in the Senate, which uh, I mean, look, we're not not here to get into the, the politics side of things. But right now, maybe if if we're ever going to see the expansion of the Ali Act to mixed martial arts politically right now, may be their best opportunity to get this through.
2: Is he a Democrat or Republican?
1: He is a Republican, which yeah, that's interesting, which I I could tell you the feeling under the previous president was that there was a a feeling out there that if somehow it was passed in the House and Senate, that it would get vetoed at the president's desk because of the relationship, because we both know the UFC. and, And I think we can say this. I think. I don't know how many non MMA promoters would come out and be against this, but I think probably they probably most of them would be against the expansion of the Ali act as is we look at what are going to be the big stories in mixed martial arts in 2023. We all know the, the gambling story is, is number one, even, uh, even Scott Coker kind of taking a little jab on that one Uh, towards the end of the virtual um, press conference where he's like, yeah, he goes, you know, me and Saki bar, we're going to make a bet, but I guess somebody ruined that one. (laughs) I was like, "Oh man!" I was like, "Coker coming out with the zinger," Um, but to me, if if there is some progression of this expansion of the Ali Act to mixed martial arts, to me, this will be the second biggest story potentially in
2: 2023. Yeah, let's just frame this for the for the listeners here. Talk to me about why you think it would be such a huge deal.
1: Well, first off, it's gonna it's gonna allow the fighters to make more money. I mean, that, that's that's the biggest thing we're talking about. Um, also, um, managers would not be able to be promoters, which would kill the re- it would kill the regional scene because so many managers are involved in the regional scene in some way. It would give fighters just a lot more rights. I I still think it's going to be a long and hard battle because I truly believe the UFC will lobby the hell out of this thing to not let it get to a vote.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think if you honestly, I, I don't think it will get to a vote just given that, you know, lobbying really works with the U.S. government. I mean, a lot of things that are divisive issues don't get resolved. And what is interesting is that it's a Republican senator that is interested in this. And I do feel like this is a topic that would get support from the Democrats. So maybe it would have success getting past the Senate, but in the house, there is a majority. I don't know. It's a very interesting thing. It's something where it's not at the highest level of priority. There are so many other higher priorities when it comes to bills in this country, that if the UFC really digs its heels with this lobbying effort, I think it will have success. But Without a doubt, Jason, to circle back to what you were saying, if it does get passed or is even up for a vote, it definitely becomes one of the more major stories of the entire year. I think that along with gambling, those will be the two biggest stories. I mean, I can't even think of something that could get up there. I mean, maybe you know Dana White stepping down could be the biggest story in 23, 20, 2023. And I only say that as a possibility just because, well, He's been on the job for a long time. At some point, he's probably going to want to chill out. Maybe not, but, you know, I, at, at some point, I think Dana's going to step down. But maybe he won't. Maybe he's going to do the job like Vince McMahon, you know, until his hair turns gray on his chest and, uh, you know, steps down in 30 years. But I don't know. I, I think that, that's a, that's a, that could be something that could happen. I, and I don't even know who in God's name would step up in his spot. I mean as much as uh as much as DC is someone who's floated around, I just I couldn't see him doing it. I don't know if they could pay him enough, but maybe they maybe they could because they keep a lot of money from the fighters, so
1: Yeah, I mean the one thing I was just looking this up. Mark Wayne Mullen originally introduced the uh, the thought of expanding the Ali Act to mixed martial arts in twenty sixteen. It's almost twenty twenty three.
2: Yeah. Government moves slow. And on a topic like this, it moves at even a, even a snail looks at that. And it's like, can you uh, move it up a little bit?
1: Yeah. Uh, By the way, speaking of uh, personalities in this sport, (laughs) I, I am not a listener of the Shale Sonnen podcast, but I listened to his episode today because he was joined by Douglas Crosby. We all know why Douglas Crosby has been in the news, the MMA judge. And this is like, I don't think there's much to take out of, out of the conversation outside of just some crazy, uh the crazy quote. And I got to find this up. I want to say I, I texted to you earlier. I did. And so, like, Shell didn't really ask any hard-hitting questions. Let, let's, let's first off sit there. But this is a quote, and MMA Junkie put this on their Twitter. It was about criticism of scoring after Bellator 289 and UFC 282. And this is what Douglas Crosby said, quote, You've got to assign a numerical value to what you just saw. And on average, you get about 15 seconds to turn that score in. And if you write off five of those seconds for the time it takes to write it, that leaves you about 10 seconds to make a decision about who won a round and who lost a round. What's
2: that was like that was definitely something that sounded a lot better in his head before he said it. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so stupid. It's so stupid. But, dude, let me point out another quote in that interview that sticks with me. That that quote you mentioned, bro, just dumb. This quote is troubling because this is what he says, where he's trying to sound super smart. Uh, he says. Basically, over the last 15 years, when you talk to fighters, the overarching comment, and I'm not going to call it a complaint, I'll call it a comment or concern, is that effective grappling is not given enough weight in the scoring criteria. And recently, the scoring criteria has been modified and updated so that effective striking and effective grappling are considered equal. This is the key point here that I have a problem with. He says, and if effective grappling is considered the equal of effective striking, and then you look at any of my scores through the newly ground mental lens, the scores may become easier to understand. I have a major problem with what he just said because one of the big uh, scorecards that was controversial was the uh, 50-45 Sabatello Mm -hmm. scorecard. And I believe he's saying that that scorecard is correct because he believed that Sabatello won the rounds via effective grappling. What I have an issue with is his definition of effective grappling to me doesn't match up with the unified rules Mm -hmm. definition of effective grappling. When you look at the unified rules, it says, um, when when talking about effective grappling, successful execution of takedowns, submission attempts, reversals, and the achievement of advantageous positions, and this is the key part here, that produce immediate or cumulative impact with the potential to contribute to the end of the match. That's the key part. End of the match. Mm-hmm. There was no moment in those five rounds where the grappling of Danny Sabatello to me was effective to possibly ending the match.
1: My one, I think, my, overall, my big takeaway from the comments that he said is it came off to me like he thinks he's the smartest guy in the room and that there's no one as smart as him. The other part of like hearing him kind of talk about like, first off, clearly he thinks MMA media makes a ton of money. Clearly he thinks we're we're all millionaires. Um, We're not here. Here's the ultimate question I would ask Douglas Crosby. Do you score fights based on the unified rules of MMA or do you score the fights on your own criteria? That to me is is a question him and Shell are close. I don't think Shell would ask him that question, but that would be the most important question to ask, especially when you hear comments that Eric Nixick um, has said uh, about Douglas Crosby uh, recently.
2: Well, it sounds like we're in a really gray area where based on the interview, it sounds like he believes he's scoring fights based on the unified criteria. But in reality, what he believes the criteria is, isn't actually the criteria. That's what I feel like we're at here because the way he talks about effective grappling to me does not match up with what the unified rules are. And that's the key point. And that's why Douglas Crosby needs to take some time off from judging fights.
1: I, I would be relatively shocked if we see (laughs) Douglas Crosby on a UFC or Bellator event anytime in the near future, I would be shocked.
2: Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, you, you, you pulled a couple other factoids that I thought were really interesting. Can you kind of share that with the class?
1: Look, you know, when I need to find some things for the pod, I go and may read it. And I saw this, this post. Uh, this is from the username Heroic uh, Shrub. And the title of it was a follow-up to yesterday's post. Rate of dissenting or disputed at least 80% of media-slash-fan-average-disagreement scorecards for 2022. The results may not shock you. Number one, Douglas Crosby at twenty one point four percent. Number two, Ron McCarthy at fourteen point six percent. Number three, Eric Cologne, thirteen point eight. Saudi Amato twelve percent, and then uh, number five, Michael Bell at eleven point nine percent. I mean, and, the crazy, and the crazy thing, and the crazy thing is, you got to go down the list a little bit to find Adelaide Bird at six point three percent.
2: It's crazy she's on there. Uh, it's crazy she's still judging fights. Um, look at that difference between one and two, and two and three. Can you say those numbers again for me?
1: Uh, number one, Crosby, twenty one point four percent. This is a rate of dissenting slash disputed scorecards by a judge in twenty twenty two. So twenty one point four percent for Douglas Crosby, fourteen point six for Ron McCarthy, and then thirteen point eight for Eric Colon.
2: So the difference between one and two is six point eight percentage points. And the difference between two and three, I want to say, is 0.8.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're That's talking about if you difference. go from two, well, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Two to eight is only a difference of 4.1%. Which
2: is less which is less than the seven percentage points. Yeah. So that tells me that this is a legitimate trend that Crosby has more often. He, he has more bad scorecards than other judges is what this mm-hmm. tells me.
1: Oh, no, no. I mean, look, it's, you know, the one thing, and and look, I continue to say this. I do not want to be a judge in that spot. Now, I did also saw this over at Reddit. It was a Twitter poll from Luca Fury, who's a great uh, mind when it comes to MMA gambling, where he said, worst MMA judge. And it was two options, Douglas Crosby or Sal Diamato. What caught my eye is the response from John Anik. Where Annex response was, I'm not sure the state. I'm not sure the state of MMA judging has ever been worse. Quite frankly, I'm looking forward to getting back to Vegas next year to have some conversations. This this is my thing about it. It's easy for us or anyone who does MMA podcast, you know, to rail on MMA judging, but the ultimate question is, how would you fix it? That, to me, is the important question when you talk about this, is what are the steps to try to do a better job? Look, mistakes are going to happen. You know, we it doesn't matter what we're talking about, MMA, NFL, MLB, NHL, Major League Baseball, whatever it may be, officials are going to make mistakes. It's going to happen. But to me, when we're talking about MMA judging, I think the conversation needs to have is, what are realistic ways to help make judging better? I think part of it is, I think we just need a bigger pool of judges. I think that's the start of it because let's be honest about it. It doesn't matter whether you've been a fan of this sport for five years or 15 years, it's the same names.
2: Yeah, that's for damn sure. You mentioned Bird, Diamato, Crosby. You know, McCarthy is a similar name, but it just happens to be John's son. It's, uh, Firstly, looking at John's comment, I don't agree with what he said. I feel like we've always had controversial judging. I mean, to me, it almost felt like an inflection point whenever Shogun and Machida fought. That to me is the burning memory of when MA judging was at its absolute mm-hmm. worst. It does feel like though we are in a trend where a lot of high-profile fights have had bad scorecards. I mean, we are at a point where it is bad. We are at a point where when Sean Strickland and Jared Cannonier are done fighting, I have no f effing idea who's going to get their hand raised after that close fight. Yeah. That's the point we're at here where we are getting to judges scorecards. And the betting odds might not even change that much whenever the fight's over. Cause the Lord only knows what the scorecards are. Um, to answer your question, I've already talked about the fact that I believe accountability should be a key part of this when it comes to reviewing judges. And if you find a judge who has a trend of bad scorecards, taking them out of the pool. I think another thing, when we start looking at how to fix judging, we got to start looking at and asking questions such as, when you look at the judging criteria, is it the best it can be? And that's going to be an interesting question whenever that gets revised, if it does get revised. And I think, me personally, I've always been a big believer in a more – I guess the word would be liberal way of scoring. Mm-hmm. I be- I'm i a believer in using more 10-8s and 10-7s. I be- because there are some rounds that are very close, right? You look at some of those cannoneer strictly rounds, for example. They were very close stand-up rounds where there wasn't a whole lot of like effective striking. Um, those were very clear 10-9s. If- versus a round where one of the two could have clearly won would probably also be scored 10-9. But those rounds to me feel very different and tell a different story. So I personally am a big believer of changing the criteria to leave room for more 10-8 rounds and making 10-8s the new 10-7s.
1: I think also part of how we make MMA judging more, um, to take the next step to try to minimize these mistakes is I think we just need more tr- more transparency from the athletic commissions. What, what, how different would the perception of MMA judging be if, say, UFC event is on Saturday, and after the event is over, all right, hey John Morgan, we know you are at every Vegas event, so you are going to be the pool reporter that gets to have a conversation with Jeff Mullen, the executive director of Nevada Athletic Commission. And he can give you a statement on any bad scores yeah i think think uh, transparency may be one of the factors we need to kind of help um
2: that's a great help
1: help us evolve
2: yes i think that's a great factor because there has been a i don't know if there's been an effective discussion from this topic but i think we could get effective discussion here's another crazy idea and i actually don't even like it but i'm just pitching it here okay what if we followed a boxing route that's a bad way to start my pitch. That's a really bad way to start my pitch. <laughs> we're, not, but,
1: we're not off to a good start, bro. <laughs> yeah.
2: Okay. But you know in boxing where if you get knocked down, you just kind of like lose a point?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, what if anytime you get knocked down or if it's deemed that a submission attempt is serious, you lose a point?
1: Well, you talk about, though, but you're talking about the three Ds, though, when well, we're talking about 10-8 rounds. Um, dominance, duration, and... Um, damage i was, I was with the third d you know yeah. but like think about it like Hafa garcia blood throughout his skull and he still wins the fight 30 27 so i mean yeah, um, yeah but, that was, but it, it, that's a weird thing but because you know, it's you, like you could get a damage
2: from like an a freaking headbutt or just mm-hmm. one like jab a jab could just cut you but Correct. it is worth being scored because it is still damaged it, it, it's a tough fight man i mean yeah, it's uh, yeah,
1: and the other issue we have in the sport is, I mean, yeah, it'd probably be great to have lifelong martial artists in there, and, and most of these judges have some type of martial arts training. But the fact is, then you get into the whole like, hey, what potential conflicts of interest, what fights can we not use you for? It, it's like, like, for example, like I don't really love listening to Daniel uh, Cormier commentary when it's an aka fighter. Because obviously, you know, yeah. there's going to be some bias there. Yeah, it's. All, I, I mean, it's only you're... natural. I don't. I don't blame Cormier. It's just in terms of from a, from a, a viewer aspect, I'd rather someone else be in that booth that doesn't potentially have any conflict of interest that may, may their commentary may be swayed one way or the other.
2: Yes, because commentary can really play a big role. I mean, I think he listened to commentary on with Jared Gordon and Patty Pimblett. It's hard not to think Gordon won that fight. But I think if you mute it, you might be more inclined to think Patty won that fight. Uh, it plays a big role. But yes, judging, I mean, you know disclosing that conflict, I'm, 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 I'm sure that's what they do. But that's a key part is you just can't have a judge with a relationship with the fighter scoring the fight. That's a serious situation there. And yeah, maybe at some point you should just be like, you can only be an MMA judge. If you have less than 150 friends on Facebook, <laughs> that should just be the the rule.
1: Yeah, I, I have no idea how many friends I have on Facebook. I have no idea. You,
2: you probably have. Four, let's just guess. Don't even look. I'm going to look for you. How many friends do you think you got on Facebook? No clue. No clue. God, that's a couple hundred. hundred
1: couple hundred probably.
2: Dude, there's no way. I bet you have 2,000. Oh, you have 779 friends. Yeah,
1: what I just don't pay attention top? to that.
2: I got 1.4K, bro.
1: Look at you, Mr. Popular yeah. over there. You know, putting your food pics in those stories. I see you. I see you. Now, I like to classify this in the, yeah, not surprise news department. So, uh, the UFC announces a fight of Paul Costa and Robert Wicker, And well, a fight's not happening because, oh, Paul Costa never signed a contract. Paul Costa on the MMA hour said this, that was very fake news because I didn't get a contract or terms of nothing to fight Robert Whitaker. Mick Mayer asked me if I would like to fight him, and I said, of course. I can fight him, but now let's go to the terms. Just this happened, and we didn't keep moving after that. They didn't send a contract or terms or nothing. They just said, if you want to fight Whitaker, let's do that fight. But I cannot do that fight. Fight the number one or number two high-level guy like Whitaker for the same same money I've been getting since 2017 doesn't make sense. Classic UFC matchmaking one Let's go. Let's leak a fight to the media and oh by the way one of the guys hasn't even signed a contract for it.
2: Yeah, and it, it's kind of nefarious too because when the fir- the news first breaks out, then you start looking at Paulo Costa as the bad guy for being the reason why we're not getting this banker fight. Mm-hmm. But it's pretty screwed up to announce a fight that wasn't agreed to, especially when a guy has clear issue with the terms when it comes to finances.
1: And I feel bad for Robert Whitaker. The guy's been preparing to fight him. And then like, you know, clearly, I mean, let's, the reality is, was the UFC being up front with Robert Whitaker? Hell no.
2: Absolutely not.
1: Absolutely not. Look, this has been a tactic that the UFC has used for years. It's a tactic they're going to continue to use. It is how they, they try to essentially force someone to take the fight that they want on the time frame they want. I mean, I I feel bad for Whitaker. I mean, the fact of he's, not, you know, right now not going to be on the Perth card. I know Jerry Caneer said he would take that fight, but unfortunately this is just a tactic the UFC uses and they're going to continue to use. I mean, look, Paul Costa's got one fight left on on his current UFC contract. I hope the guy gets paid, but my gut feeling is I feel like this is ultimately going to end that, you know, Paul Costa's fighting somewhere in mixed martial arts in another promotion maybe the pfl by the time we're talking next year at this time
2: yeah we started the podcast off with scott cooker saying he has to trust with the Ryzen. it's hard to listen to those comments and look at the fallout and and believe that paulo costa has trusted the ufc yeah i think it's a pretty safe assumption that paulo costa will likely be fighting somewhere else next year oh, oh 2024 2024 not 2023 because <laughs> he may only fight one time in 2023 but Yeah, moving forward, I think he's going to be outside the UFC.
1: Probably the PFL. Look, I mean, if if PFL offers you that bag, go take that PFL bag, man. You got to take that PFL bag now. Of course, uh, last week it was UFC Vegas 66. You kind of briefly mentioned about uh, that scorecard. Really weird that we have – Three 49-46 scorecards, and one of them is for the loser, Sean Strickland. Uh, Armor Sarukian goes out there get the win. Armor Sarukian, he had a, a very interesting quote from the MMA Hour this week where he said, Michael Chandler needs to retire already. All of them need to retire. Benil Darius? No, not him. Chandler, Poirier, Gaethje. Just get rid of them. Eliminate from the top 15. All they do is fight each other, and that's it. They don't want to fight anyone those three guys are my least favorite fighters.
2: Yeah, I think uh, I think one of the themes from the fight night interviews was a lot of guys complaining that they couldn't find fights. A lot of guys complaining that people were ducking them. I mean, that was the big narrative for the Sarukian and Isguloff fight. But even Drew Dober, who had a hell of a fight against Bobby Green, that's a must-watch Ooh. fight. Even Drew Dober was complaining about guys ducking him. So, like, what's the issue here, you know?
1: Well, I mean, I mean, look. I think if you're do, you look at a guy like Dober, you kind of know what he brings to the equation. I mean, boy, did not see. I, I thought that fight had 15 minutes written all over. Did not see a second round knockout coming. I mean, you know, we we had. I mean, we. This card just starts off with a flurry of decisions. Only one of the fights ends in a stoppage, which was Saeed Nurmagomedov and Saeed Yokub Kakarmanov. Great fight, by the way. If people had not seen that nice action-packed fight, that ninja choke that Saeed Nurmagomedov lands in a second round and uh, Saeed Yokub pretty much, he taps essentially pretty immediately once he locked that choke in that was a a really fun fight uh you know I tweeted about uh the Hafa Garcia uh Mahashate fight uh you know y- you know that UFC gif just bleed that was literally that yeah. fight
2: yeah Garcia man he was he was in rough shape but you know good performance against Mahashate. I mean that's a guy that I I, I I really was a fan of and you know Garcia had a diverse approach and and won that decision um Dude, uh, Saeed Yookab, feel bad for that dude because he was dominating that fight against Narmaga Madoff with the grappling and just gets caught in a choke. Uh, oh, oh, sca- I kn-
1: oh, oh, bro, I know because he was racking up some fancy points and the uh, whole boy over here was cheering that one on.
2: <laughs> yeah, and then you, you look one way and the, and the man's tapping. I, I thought the thing that stuck with me out of the fight night is Amir albazi's power. Mm-hmm. this dude hits hard for 125. He went up against Alessandro Costa, and my big takeaway was he's one of the hardest hitters in that weight class. I mean, that was a, it was a great display of power by him.
1: How about Bruce Leroy, who is now 7-1 and in his last eight fights?
2: Man, he's a real pleasant guy. Well, I mean, first off, really good win over Julian Rosa. Uh Pretty clear difference in the stand-up between these two, but just a really pleasant post-fight interview. He's getting all zen on me, and I just feel like I'm more enlightened. And uh yeah, his uh his stand up is just he, he just looks like uh he looks like Bruce Lee, man. And and that's exciting. I'm excited to see what the next couple of years look like for Bruce Leroy. He could be a big star for the UFC.
1: 2010, bro. All took fighter. Debuted. Yeah. His official UFC debut came March 26, thousand and eleven. Wow. He is one of three fighters still in the UFC. From that season? No, from that car that he made his debut on. The oh, only guy oh. still left in the UFC, Korean zombie and Nick Lentz.
2: Wow. And let me let me look at the, the people on this show.
1: So the main oh. event was Phil Davis versus Little Nog. Co main event, Anthony Johnson, Dan Hardy.
2: Damn, that is crazy. I remember that fight. And like, I, I feel think the, like,
1: how has the UFC not done like a, a a retrospective on various seasons of the Ultimate Fighter?
2: What do you mean by that?
1: Like going back and like, what if you did like a, a an hour long documentary on season twelve of the Ultimate Fighter, Team GSV versus Team Koscheck?
2: Yeah. It'd be good to go down memory lane. I mean, there's so many names I'm looking now that just, you know, bring back memories, you know, a Nam (laughs) fan.
1: Okay. Uh, I'm I'm looking at the the draft from this season. GSP six pick was Cody McKenzie. You know what my biggest memory of Cody McKenzie is? What's that? Remember, like, when he went to, like, Walmart to get fight shorts? It was, like, just basically, like, gym shorts? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, that is... GSP had a great first pick in Michael Johnson. Yeah, I mean he had
2: a great draft. Like he had Michael Johnson and Jonathan Brookin, so I think those that, that was the finals. Uh yeah. He picked Caceres McKenzie. I mean, the only guy that Koshek picked that was pretty good was Nam Fan. Uh yeah. Oh, and I guess Kyle Watson also went to the finals, who was also a GSP pick. Um yeah, man. Freaking uh, GSP clean. Sl- I mean, yeah, GSP at three of the four semifinalists.
1: It's it's one of those things that if you really just took a deep dive in the Ultimate Fighter, be like, what were what ultimately ended up being like the best seasons? Like, I'm looking at the following season, which was the um, the JDS and Lesnar season. Tony Ferguson was the third pick of Brock Lesnar. Uh, and Miles Jury was the fifth pick of Brock Lesnar.
2: Damn. We should just do who was the best, who had the best draft class in, in ultimate fighter history.
1: I'm just going yeah. down Wikipedia and just kind of looking at some of these. And, um, Bisbing uh, the following season took TJ Dillashaw, uh, Diego Brandow. That's actually, this was this season of him and uh, mayhem Miller was not a bad year. Dotson was on that year. Johnny Bedford, Dillashaw, Brandow, Bermudez, Caraway. Steven Seiler that wasn't a bad season
2: no it's a good year I mean to me my favorite ultimate fighter season of all time is is the ultimate fighter season five um, between Jens Pulver and BJ Penn it's a big deal for me because it's whenever I was getting into the UFC I was in high school at the time and I was actually downloading the, um, the episodes from the iTunes store and watching it on my iPod touch and it was just so riveting, and
1: you know <laughs> that that's that's some old school. There's a there is there is, there is younger viewers of us are going. What is an iPod Touch?
2: I know, I know, and it's 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 crazy, but you know, I don't even need to look at the Wikipedia to to name those fighters off, right? Like the finals were Nate and Manny Gambirian, and that season had Matt Wyman on it, it had Cole Miller on it. It was just uh, Joe Lozon was on it, mm. who had knocked out Jens Pulver.
1: Okay, uh, I'll give I'll give you a story about this season. One of the guys on Team Pin was Alan Baruby, who uh, originally from the Northeast, but he was down here in Tampa. He he had his own uh, lobster restaurant, and I remember being at a bar. He was at the bar there too, and some guys started talking, mad trash to him. I went up to do and go, hey man. You might want to slow your roll. He goes, Well, I go, uh, that's a professional MMA fighter over there. So he would <laughs> kick the crap out of you. And he goes, Oh, man, thanks for letting me know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the one guy you don't want to get in a fight with is the uh, the cage fighter who, who like, trains. Did,
1: like, did the ears not give it away?
2: Yeah, the cauliflower ears, you not the lobster guy out in there. Oh, uh, that's crazy. Yeah, imagine. Yeah, the, imagine getting in a fight with an MMA fighter. You will get your ass kicked.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just like you look at some of these seasons, and you're like, man, the UFC, so many seasons did not get a lot of talent for years to come.
2: Yeah, whatever your Colton Smith one, that was a bad year.
1: Oh, God, yeah, that was, that was a bad no. one.
2: Yeah, well, Sean Strickland was on a season, right? Or was he not? No, he was no, not on one. No. Yeah, I don't know why I thought no. he was. Yeah, well, he'd be good. He'd be good. Uh, imagine him as a coach. Maybe that's what uh, we'll bring back the Ultimate Fighters if you do you know, uh, Sean Strickland as oh, a coach.
1: Oof. You gotta put, you better put that thing on ESPN Plus. <laughs> Don't put that on. ESPN+. <laughs> but like I heard, um, I want to say it was Ben Folks who brought up this this topic of Sean Strickland, saying, you know what? Maybe what hurts Sean Strickland is this is a guy that just loves the spar way too much, and it's actually hurting him on fight night because. He's just not as aggressive as he needs to be to walk away with decision victories.
2: Man, I tell you what. If I had a dollar for every time I heard that Sean Strickland spars with MMA gloves on, I would probably have more money than Elon Musk, I think. I mean, it, I know it's a key part of his narrative, and it's probably kind of true, but for the love of God, I heard this story at every freaking round. And it makes sense because, like, nothing was happening in this fight. This yeah. fight sucked. This fight was boring. Uh, it wasn't awful, but it was tactical, which is a code word for boring. Uh, here's the thing. The the the, the, the sparring, look, it, it's a bad idea, and I'll tell you why. Because no one else does it. Uh, if it was a good idea, other people would do this type of training. Well, So that's why it's it, probably a bad it, idea.
1: If you're doing technical sparring, I don't, I don't think. It's, but if, like if you're going hardcore sparring, multiple, you know, more than you know, four or five days a week, yeah, you're you're sparring way too much.
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, obviously, there's a balance. But what I'm saying mm-hmm. is this narrative that Sean Strickland, this is his only way of training, is just sparring all yeah. the time in MMA gloves. That's not a great strategy for sure. Where it does show though is his striking defense is really good. Like his ability to not really take too much damage from a really good striker and Jared Caneer's show through. But when it came to Sean, it was a close fight. Uh, the jab alone wasn't enough to counter some of the hard shots Jared threw at him as well as the leg kicks. And I think the one thing Strickland's going to regret looking at the fight tape is not throwing more kicks. I think had he done that and had he gone to other areas of Jared's body, That would have probably opened things up, but this was a fight where really both fighters struggled to pierce the defense and land. Mm
1: -hmm. You know, you mentioned earlier while we were talking about this car, about the fact of, you know, these fighters complaining about not getting fights. If you're at 170 pounds and takedown defense, isn't a strength of yours. How many are signed up to take on not Fokker Cause that's all he did, to Brian Bow. Just continue just to take him down, and just I think he had, I think he had like fourteen minutes of control time. I want to say. Oh my gosh! It, yeah, it, it was. I'm pulling it up right now. It, it was a crazy number. Um, so he had seven takedowns, fourteen minutes and eleven seconds of control <laughs> time. They only fought for fifteen minutes. <laughs>
2: yeah, you had two 30, 25 score. Cards. Think, think
1: about this. Look at this. He landed seven takedowns. Brian battle landed three significant strikes.
2: That Yeah, that was, that was a wild fight, uh, for Brian Bro, and he needs to learn to, uh, defensive takedowns because th- the th- book is th- out yeah,
1: yeah. Brian battle wanted landed one significant strike in the first round, one significant strike in the second round and one significant strike in the third round. <laughs>
2: You're going to need to put up more stats than that. All right. That was yeah, that was a bad performance for Brian. Um, Yeah, that that's, think, crazy. Like, that's like, freaking like, crazy. All
1: right. Control time via round. First round, four minutes and 41 seconds. Second round, four minutes and 49 seconds. Third round, four minutes and 41 seconds.
2: That's got to be a record. That's got to be a record in the UFC. It's pretty hard to get past that when it comes to a 50-minute fight.
1: <sighs> yeah, well, you would uh, think, you know. Uh, the only, the only issue you see there is just not being able to finish a fight, but yeah. I mean, uh, but that's the question. I mean, I'm sure that you know when people are, are you know calling up Mick or Sean and they and they say, "All right, we got a poem for you," and not so we got them ready for you. They're gonna go. Oh, I've got an entry, man. Uh, I'm not gonna be ready for that date.
2: Yeah, I don't wanna. I don't wanna make my money on on my back. 15 minutes. Yeah, I agree with you. I think uh, I think that's definitely gonna be the case. I think the other fighter that stood out to me in the fight was uh, Matthew Smelzberger and Jake Matthews. That was a really good fight, and I just thought Semmelsberger won it by scoring more knockdowns in that oh. contest. But Jake was really good in it too.
1: Here's my only problem with that fight, Jake Matthews. What was that game plan? You have seen Smelzberger struggle with takedown offense, and like he doesn't attempt to get the fight to the ground. And I'll give you this. Jake Matthews, you are one tough SOB to survive being dropped three times. But yeah, like if Spellsberger would not have gotten that decision, I'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, we need to overhaul my judging at that point.
2: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. That's just the criteria is not being applied because that was the clear cut effective striking that won him rounds. But, you know, these two got rematched. I would look at maybe putting money on Matthews having watched that fight. Because I do think he has more tools to win said fight. He just, you know, he got rocked three times, which is just, it's pretty hard to win a fight that way, I got to say.
1: Yeah. Um, of course, you know, we mentioned about the fact of the next UFC events not till January 14th. That's a fight night card. Uh, Gaslum and Emovol for headline that one. Really do love the Jeff Neal and Shafcock Rakamanoff fight. That's a really good That was actually supposed to take place uh, last week. It got delayed a little bit there. Uh, Damon Jackson will be taking on Danny. I'm actually talking to Damon Jackson tomorrow. Uh, that will be on. I'll probably put that podcast out on Mondays. Sometimes it's tough to put out that interview edition of the podcast on Sunday just because during football season. So uh, I've got uh, four interviews I'm actually doing tomorrow, so you can check that out uh, over there as well. Isaac Delgarian is finally going to make his UFC debut on that card. The reason I say that is you remember when Dana White did his uh, Dana White looking for a fight and how two fighters were going to get contracts okay, and the Nelk boys were going to be there? Yeah. And how he, how it was pitched about how it was going to be a sponsorship with the milk boys. Well, it ended up being that their base were trying to manage him. And so Isaac Dolgarian, Delgar- that was in February of last year or this year, I should say, I'm already thinking it's 2023. So yeah, he's been on the ice for 11 months waiting for this fight. So he finally makes his, uh, it'll make his UFC debut, a part of this one. And, uh, Jimmy Flick coming out of retirement. Cause well, you know, you never, never believe, believe that R word in MMA. By the way, he was supposed yeah. he was supposed to take on Jeff Molina. Jeff Molina uh, withdrew from the fight.
2: Wonder why? Wonder why? Wonder if he was involved
1: with anything? Uh, Look, I, I it's like I said. I I think I said here on the show a couple weeks ago. If a Glory fighter pulls out of a fight with you know, anytime next couple weeks, you know people are go- you know people are going to raise questions.
2: Yeah, yeah, man, it's uh it's it's you know it's not hard to raise questions it it's it just isn't especially with Molina who is very closely tied to James Krause and it could be innocuous it could be random but we're in we're in the uh, the business of connecting the dots right now when it comes to this story because we don't have any facts
1: it's been pretty quiet though oh you know um over the last week on that story really not much I, I did see um because James Lynch tweeted he retweeted it and it was this person on um, on YouTube. they did like an hour long video on this. I got through about 30 minutes of it. It just to me was kind of a lot of things we kind of knew. Um, yeah. but you know I, I do feel the media is talking more and more about it. I, I think that there seems to be this perception that the media is not, but I, I do kind of get the sense that uh, the media is talking about it.
2: I think at first the coverage could have been more. But whenever Cross got suspended, everyone talked about it. Now we're at a point where there isn't any new information. So I think that's kind of been the coverage. I, w- I would criticize the media from, I felt like overall we should have done, there should have been more coverage across all the websites. Whenever Miles Johns said that Cross was taken away from his corner, there were some websites that didn't have immediate articles about it, which was surprising to me. Mm-hmm. But whenever the suspension happened, everyone dug in. And, I mean, James Krauss was essentially persona non grata in the mixed martial arts world.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we joked about no one in this sport is going to pay for interview for the most part. I feel like a lot of people would pay for that James Krause exclusive.
2: <sighs> the man probably needs money, too, uh, at this point. So I agree with you. I agree with you. I mean, that would <laughs> I'm, be...
1: I'm, I'm going to throw a wild, hot take there. I'm gonna say James Cross how you do interviews anytime soon.
2: At least with someone who's not part of the FBI. Yeah.
1: Because yeah. you know it's like Dana White says, you're going to F in prison, bro. Yeah,
2: put it on a <laughs> damn shirt.
1: I'm I'm shocked no one has created that shirt yet.
0: There's you're plenty of memes. F-
1: there's plenty of memes on it.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Dana White, the meme machine.
1: Yeah. I, I was I was uh I saw he did this interview. I forget who the guy was I, I, I rec- I've seen the guy do other stuff, but I'm not sure who he was. But he was talking about how basically the ESPN deal came about and how the uh F- John Skipper who was running ESPN as their F what he was as their Foxy was coming to an end. And is like he's like, We knew we weren't renewing with Fox. Fox was going in a different direction. And he goes, and we knew John Skipper did not like MMA. And he goes, it basically, he tells a story about how Skipper has to resign from ESPN because apparently he had a Coke problem and his dealer was going to expose him and leak it out. And so that's how then a pro MMA person came in to run ESPN's, uh, uh, (laughs) deals. And that's how, uh, the UFC got their ESPN deal. So if John Skipper doesn't get exposed by his Coke dealer, who knows where the UFC would be at right now.
2: That's pretty crazy.
1: That I, I, pretty I saw crazy. I saw the clip. I I will say I saw it on Twitter this morning, and I was like, "Wow, that is an insane story." Who was getting interviewed? Dana. Who said that? Dana White.
2: Dana's like, that's Dana. Just he has a way of saying stories that have like a random sidetrack that is even more newsworthy than anything else. <laughs> I'm just gonna throw this guy under the bus. Say he had a coke problem. He's like, oh, yeah, he had a coke problem, right? Like, our our dealer was saying. I mean, his dealer was saying, yeah.
1: <laughs> Look, I, I don't, I don't think Dana has a problem with throwing anybody under the bus. I'm just, I'm just wild speculation.
2: Yeah, did you hear that, John Gruden? I'm going Monday night football, and
1: yeah. I'm telling you, but every every time there's a Manny cast, I want, I, I don't watch the main broadcast. I always watch the manicast.
2: I don't, I don't like the Mannings anymore because Arch Manning is going to the University of Texas and I'm a Texas a and Aggie, so they're dead to me look, until he transfers after one year.
1: Look, I think you have bigger problems than Arch Manning going to Texas. Just- You're right.
2: We have so many five-star recruits, we can't figure out who gets what starting position.
1: <laughs> well, we see how that worked out last year.
2: Damn it! Screw you. Okay, the, the only problem with Texas A and M was we just had a lot of young players. You know, it's all right. Jimbo's gonna stop calling the plays. We're gonna get an offensive coordinator, and we're probably gonna win the national championship for the next seven years. Very confident in that.
1: I don't believe you.
2: Yeah, shut up, man. Whatever. Just because you got out of the wilderness before the state doesn't mean. I, yeah, you, I, you're finally out of the well, woods, man. You're you're, you're doing next, good
1: there. Well, next Thursday I will be at the uh, the cheese bowl. Ooh. For FSU in Oklahoma over there in Orlando, so uh, so yeah, that's what I'll be it's doing good. next Thursday. Hopefully, it's not it's cold. A good
2: ball game. Yeah, it's it's really uh, it's actually going to be freezing temperatures during Christmas down here. Oh
1: yeah, it, uh, here in Tampa, it's going to be like in the 30s on Christmas. It'll actually be warmer out in Arizona.
2: That's crazy, dude. Um, here here it's supposed to be eight degrees. Or no, no. It's supposed to feel like eight degrees. Oh, it's supposed to like, feel <laughs> like eight degrees. Which is yeah. Yeah, that that's according to a little letter I got yeah, from the National yeah. Weather Service.
1: Yeah, the low on Sunday in Tampa is thirty one with a high of forty seven out in Glendale. Uh low of low of forty three. High of seventy.
2: <laughs> yeah. That just looks delightful for you know. It just hit yeah, up man. your family. Yeah, we're we're looking at thirty seven low of twenty eight on Friday and thirty seven low thirty one. But the feels like temperature is supposed to be even worse. is what I read.
1: So you got so, you got to pull out that those those extra uh, strength hoodies.
2: Yeah, or just one hoodie because I don't normally wear any. Uh, oh, it, you know, and yeah, I don't I don't have the winter clothing. Our area is not prepared. The only the only upside is we're not going to get rain. Uh, currently he introduced yeah, ran the free scene. Oh, that's a mess.
1: Yeah. Well, I had to have the winter clothing just for the travel schedule. Cause you know, you never know where you could end up, you know?
2: Yeah. Yeah. It, that's definitely true. It, it, but our our, our
1: our next two road games are both, uh, are both indoor stadiums. So, uh, you don't have to worry about it being either really cold or raining, which has been the case, uh, the past two road games.
2: Damn. It's uh and, and uh, what what's what's been the most craziest weather game you've had this year?
1: Uh, well, San, when we were in San Fran, it was it rained like the whole time we were there. It mm-hmm. it was pretty good for most of the game, and then it started just coming down in the fourth quarter. Um, Germany was a little cold. We had like another rain game. Um oh when we were in Cleveland, it like rained the whole game. Wow. Like that, yeah, just, uh, yeah. But yeah, just look at the rest of the schedule. But like I remember one year we did a game in Baltimore. It was like in November, December. It was raining and just cold the whole game. I felt I, I felt bad for my guys on oh, the I felt bad. And that's when that's when you're like, Well, I'm up in the booth, so I just gotta deal with that weather coming that wind coming in through the windows.
2: Yeah, but that ain't nothing. When you're on the field that's that's literal hell even though it feels well, I guess the exact opposite.
1: Well, you think I I just think like that camera guy that's got to stand there the whole game no matter what. Like mm-hmm. would not want to be in Buffalo when they have those winter storms. No, thank you.
2: No. No, I mean you're Yeah, but those guys they know how to deal with the situation because they're veterans, but yeah, it's uh yeah,
1: it's a different ballcat I'm not I'm not built like that, bro. I'm not built like no. that.
2: Yeah, me neither. Me neither. I, I mean, like, if
1: you told me it was 70 degrees every day, I would take that in a heartbeat. Oh, man.
2: Yeah. But you start ticking down, and that's eh, a crisis.
1: Especially here in Florida. Yeah, it's it's a crisis. But, of course, we appreciate everyone tuning in for this episode of the M Report Podcast. Of course, uh, be sure to uh, subscribe to the show, whether it's on YouTube or on the podcasting platforms. We will be back next week as we'll, uh, we'll figure out something. Oh, well. Well, I, Daniel says something will happen. ma. So we'll have plenty to talk about. Something will happen. It's well, I mean, we can preview the Bellator horizon show. Um, that'll be there, but uh, good chance. Something crazy happens.
2: Yeah. Something somebody, crazy is going to happen.
1: Somebody will say something insane over the next seven days. Actually, it'll probably happen between now and the time I get this show edited and posted.
2: That's usually what happens. But you always know in any given week in this sport, insanity takes place.
1: Well, we appreciate you tuning in for this episode, and we will talk to you next week right here on the MMA Report Podcast.